And church family, it, it, it is the Sunday that kicks off Thanksgiving week. On Thursday, many of us will be with family and friends, and we're going to be celebrating God's undeserved kindness and his goodness in our lives. And, and normally, as a way of helping us and myself to be better heart prepared for this special holiday, I usually break from whatever series that we might be doing at the time and we just head off in a Thanksgiving-themed direction on this particular Sunday. But we're not going to break from our study series in 1 John today because, quite frankly, we don't have to. We don't need to. And the reason we don't need to is because there is a fantastic cause for Thanksgiving waiting for us right here within the folds of chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, which which are the verses that just happen to be uh, in our sights as we've been moving through the book. It just times out perfectly for this to work. I think it's a Holy Spirit thing. And, and the cause for thanksgiving that is in this particular portion of First John has to do with the wonderful promise of Jesus' return, his coming back. Jesus is coming back for those who belong to him. Amen? And that is a part of this particular section. And if that's not a cause for thanksgiving, man, I don't know what it is. The thought that Jesus would be coming back for you and me. On Thursday, you and I will have many reasons to express our thanks to God. And maybe because of what we share here this morning, the soon return of Jesus for those who love him, maybe that will be added to your list of reasons for thanksgiving as you gather with family and friends. I hope so. And so, brothers and sisters, what is it that is waiting for us in our future? What can we anticipate? What can we look forward to as real Christians in an unreal world? And what difference should the return of Jesus make in who I am right now and how I do life today? 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 3, 3 is going to help us answer those questions. And if you're thinking... Hey, you know what, Tim? We were here before. This isn't our first time in this particular section. Well, that is true. Two weeks ago, broken up by the, by the elder planning weekend last weekend when Jeremy filled the pulpit. But two weeks ago, we were right here in this same section. And so thank you for remembering that we were already here. And if you recall that we were here last time, you'll remember that there, I told you that there are two major themes in this particular section, and we would only have time to address one of them. We'd have to save the other one for the next time we were together, which is today. And so the return of the Lord Jesus is one of those two themes. The other theme, which we've already looked at, is the incomprehensible truth that, that we are the adopted sons and daughters of the infinite creator God of the universe. Now, that's the theme we addressed two mornings ago. Right now, you are God's daughter, and God is your father if you are in Jesus by faith. Right now, you are God's son, and he is your father if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is right now not just your Redeemer, but because of your adoption, He is your brother, right? And because we are all members by adoption 
into God's family through faith in Jesus, that means that you and I are all what? We're brothers and sisters, aren't we? Through faith in Jesus. And that, to tell you the truth, is a more binding relationship than any blood relationship that you might have with brothers or sisters here on the earth. Because this relationship of brothers and sisters lasts forever and ever and ever, doesn't it? Yeah. You're my brothers and sisters this morning through faith in Jesus, and I am your brother. All of that we talked about last time. That's one of the great themes of this section, our adoption into God's family. The other great theme is the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Let me read for us. You follow along, beginning of verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we'll stop right there. Now remember that John is writing to churches that are reeling from the effects of false teachers that have, that have worked their way into the churches of Asia Minor in the late first century. And these false teachers have preached a false gospel and many in the churches have sadly embraced this false teaching and they have left the church. They left Jesus. They left the church. Verse 19 of chapter 2 describes these, these unreal professing Christians as having failed to abide in Christ. John says if they had been of us, truly of us, truly real Jesus followers, they would have continued with us, but they proved that they never really knew Jesus because they left. And so John urges his readers to abide, to remain true to Jesus and to the true gospel, his death for our life. In these verses that we just read, the Holy Spirit supplies us with a wonderful, powerful incentive to not give up on or walk away from Jesus. A powerful incentive for abiding in him. In verse 28, he says, when he appears, who appears? Jesus, right? At his coming. At whose coming? Jesus coming. And then again in 3 verse 2, he says, when he appears, he's talking about Jesus. He is referring to what is often called the second coming of Christ or the return of the Lord Jesus. And if you've been a Christian for very long, you've spent time probably thinking about this great truth. I would prefer to call it not so much the second coming of Christ or or even the return of the Lord Jesus. But as you see it there on your note page, I would call this our greatest moment. When we see Jesus face to face. Our greatest moment. The coming again of 
our Savior, Jesus, to take us to be with him is a dominant and recurring theme in the New Testament. It's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, so that's more than one per chapter. It's mentioned in every book of the New Testament that has uh, more than one chapter except the book of Galatians. And so this is obviously a very important theme on the heart of the Holy Spirit, the return of Jesus. On your note page are several places where Jesus' return is declared by him and by others. And this is just a tiny representation of all that there is. I'm not going to read these verses, but I will urge you to maybe go back in your quiet time this week and and read these verses and others that go with them. Because just the sheer weight of the truth of Jesus' return does the soul good that is waiting for Jesus, right? It just does our soul good to read of his return. However, I will draw your attention to the very last verse there on your note page at the very bottom, Revelation 22, verse 20. That's the next to the last verse in the Bible. And it says this, Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, surely I am coming when? Soon. I am coming soon. The written revelation of God, the completion of the Bible that you hold in your hands, the closing verse says, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then what is our response? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? We kind of did that a little bit weekly, I thought. So upon the return of Jesus, the thought of that, what do we say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Ah, That's much better. Much better. These and so many other references put in front of us, fellow Christian, the certainty of Jesus' return. In verse 3, John calls this glorious truth of Jesus' return our hope. And everyone who thus hopes in the return of Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. Jesus imminent, which means at any time, at any moment it could happen, Jesus' imminent return is our confident expectation as lovers of Jesus. Would you agree? Is that true for you today? Are you confidently expecting Jesus to return? Yes, I certainly am. If we are real lovers of the Lord, How can it not be true that we would be eagerly looking for him to come? Our greatest moment, apart from that moment perhaps when we confessed Jesus as our Savior and Lord and we crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in him, our greatest moment is going to be when we see Jesus face to face. I can't wait. Can you wait? This is a cause for thanksgiving, isn't it? Now, again, remember that John in this section from really from 2.15 on through to 3.3, he's writing to urge his Christian friends to abide in the one true gospel. Never leave it. Stay in it. Persevere. And so now to what he's already said to us about the benefits of abiding, he's going to add one more benefit in verse 28. Abiding in Jesus, he says, will give you confidence when Jesus returns and you stand before him. You'll be confident on that day in that moment. That's a benefit of abiding. 
Again, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have what? Confidence. And this is set in sharp contrast with those who will shrink from him in shame at his coming. Because they didn't abide, right? They didn't abide. Now, we know who John is thinking about in his immediate context when he thinks about those who are shrinking back at Jesus' coming. He's thinking about those false teachers who are preaching a false gospel. And and he's thinking about all those who had been in the church and they had professed love for Jesus, but then they abandoned Jesus and they left for some more tantalizing false gospel. He's thinking about them. He's thinking about those who didn't persevere. Those who did not remain true to Jesus and to the true gospel. And of course, beyond John's immediate context, those who shrink back when Jesus comes. Well, that refers to anybody in any age who has not made Jesus their Savior and their Lord. Agreed? Yeah, those are the ones who will shrink back. For those persons, when Jesus comes, who have not made him Lord and Savior, The return of Jesus is is not anything like their greatest moment. It's actually going to be the most terrifying and shameful moment that they have ever known. In fact, we get the smallest taste of that from a couple of verses that are found in Revelation chapter 6. Check this out. We'll put up on the screen for you. Follow along as I read and just imagine this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Is that shame? Is that terror? Absolutely. Little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. Oh, may no one who is in this room today ever be found in Revelation 6. Jesus died to prevent that from happening. Now, this is the negative, this is the dark, the the terrible side of Jesus' soon and certain return. And we have to acknowledge that this will be the sad fate of billions of people in our world who don't know Jesus when he comes. But this is not where John hangs out. This is not his focus, and it's not our focus either. Let's zero in, not on the dark or heavy-hearted side of Jesus' return, let's focus on the great truths that go with his return as it relates to us. That means verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. If you'll flip your note page over, here are promises that are meant to encourage us and lift us up, sustain us, challenge us, move us to abide, and I hope fill us with thanksgiving as we share them together. One more time, here's how verse 2 reads. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. It hasn't been made known to us yet. But we know 
that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Our greatest moment. By virtue of God's adopting love to all who believe in his son, we're already children of God. John tells us that right now. And that in itself is an astonishing truth. But God doesn't stop there. Because verse 2 goes on to say that what we will be when we are all that our Father has in mind for us to be, well, that hasn't been fully revealed yet. That is still to come. We are sons and daughters now, but the best is still to come. It's coming. It's like those TV commercials. But wait, there's more. Right? But wait, that's not all. Your sons and daughters, but wait, that's not all. What we will be has not yet been revealed. It hasn't appeared yet. The full reach and effect of our redemption in Jesus is not yet fully known to us. There is much, much more awaiting us than than we can see or lay hold of right this moment. Well, like what, John? What's coming? What's coming? Verse 2. We know that when He appears, we shall be what? Like Him. Like who? Like Christ. Like Jesus. Because we shall see Him as He is. Now, we better take that slow. Because that is a lot right there. When He appears... That is Jesus' return. He's coming back, as He promised in those verses that that are on the other side of your note page. And His promise in Revelation 22.20, He's coming back. We shall see Him. Jesus, we will see Him. We will see Him as He is. And what is the outcome of this glorious sight of Jesus that we will see? We shall be like Him. In other words, we shall be transformed. We shall see Him as He is. Theologians of old called this the beatific vision. If you read some old commentaries, you will read that word, that that phrase. The beatific vision. Beatific means happy. So, the return of Jesus and us seeing Him is the happy vision. The beatific vision. When was the last time you used the word beatific? (laughs) I can't recall ever using that word in my life. So again, let's just call it what it really is. It's the greatest moment of our life. Right? To see Jesus as He is. Not as He was, but as He is. Not in the the servant clothing of his earthly ministry. Not in the pain and the anguish of his nakedness and suffering at the cross. Certainly not in the shroud of sorrow and darkness at his death. In fact, let this thought encourage you. We who know Jesus today, we will never see Jesus as he was during His earthly ministry, when as God, He walked among us with His glory cloaked and looking very much like anybody else in our, in our circle. 
Tens of thousands saw that Jesus with their own eyes. And they were not necessarily transformed by that vision. True? They didn't. They weren't changed. They weren't like Jesus. Jesus' glory was cloaked. In fact, today we would say it is stealth glory. Not easily detected. His true identity in all of its fullness was purposely hidden by Jesus so that he could could do his redeeming work. However, the demons, they knew who he was, right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, they say, We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus had to shut them up. However, almost everybody else missed Jesus. They missed him. Certainly Israel's religious leaders missed him. The massive crowds, they got hints of who Jesus was through his miracles. But many missed him, even though they saw him. The disciples came the closest, but, but only three of them were granted a glimpse of Jesus as he is right now in all of his heavenly splendor. Do you remember the moment? The moment is called the transfiguration. And it's found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them for us. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, there's more to the moment than what I've just read, but that's the substance of it. For just a moment, Jesus decloaked. He unstealthed himself and he allowed his true glory to radiate from his person. And it radiated from him like 10,000 suns shining with full intensity. No movie effect can come close to replicating the, the resurrection glory of Jesus because that kind of light is not simply light, it's holiness. It's, it's power. It's majestic, unchangeable deity. And it explodes. So that we're told the angels of heaven cover their faces. They can't look at it. The glorious Son of God. For just a tiny moment, He lets these three guys see what is coming. And then Jesus went stealth mode again. Came down off that mountain and, and ascended then back into heaven. This Jesus, the fully glorious angels fall on their faces before Him, Son of God Jesus, is He who is going to appear, who is coming, and when He does, we will see Him how? As He is. With our eyes, He will be visible. No more will our love of Him be by faith. It will be by sight. He will return and we will see Him as He is. And for all that He is. In all of His glory. And many will shrink back in fear and terror. But not us, brothers and sisters. Not us. 
Because we have, by God's preserving grace and our perseverance, we have abided, we have remained true to our confession to the very end. And so we will have confidence in that moment, whenever it happens, when Jesus comes, we will see Him as He is. Now that's worth saying thanks for, right? And the Holy Spirit says through John that in this moment of seeing Jesus at His coming, something happens to us. We will be what? What? Like Him. We will be like Him. What does that mean? That can only mean that we're going to be changed, right? We're going to be transformed. We are going to be transfigured. We're going to be like Him. Because we're certainly not that way right now, right? Now, it might sound like I'm making this stuff up. Too many Star Wars movies for you, Tim, right? That kind of a thought. But I'm not making this up. This comes right out of God's Word. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. You know, so often it seems to me, brothers and sisters, and I'm guilty of this as well, when, when we talk about heaven, we speculate, speculate about what it will be like, what heaven will be like. Streets of gold, and, and I, I, you know, I wonder, what will my house in heaven be like that Jesus is building for me, right? Will there be seasons in heaven? Uh, what will we do all day? Will, will there even be days? Do we eat? Do we sleep? A few weeks back, I was greeting folks in, uh, at, the, at the front doors at the end of service, and this lady comes by and and just out of the blue she says I believe my dogs will be in heaven great <laughs> you know some in this room are wondering if there will be golf in heaven right now I'm not saying that such ponderings are wrong we're naturally curious creatures and we want to know but we speculate about what heaven will be like when probably the more important question is really, what will we be like? Right? Isn't that the more important question? What will we be like? Jesus came in order to restore fully what sin broke. And sin broke us. Right? Sin broke our ability to bear God's image accurately and unimpaired. Sin broke our desires, our right desires. Sin broke our capacity to love each other and to love God well. Jesus, by His cross and by His resurrection, restores what sin destroyed. God provides a new life for us through faith in His Son. We are different people now than before we knew Jesus, right? Right? You're not the same person you were before you knew Jesus, that you are right now because you know Jesus. And the Spirit of God is changing us right now. He is changing us through an ongoing process that the Bible calls sanctification. It's a big word. It simply means that we are being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus, His character, His nature. Over time, the Holy Spirit is remaking. He's changing Conforming our hearts and our minds so that we look more and more like Jesus. A little bit more like Him tomorrow than we do today. That's called sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, 
with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed. Transformed. Present tense. Being transformed into the same image. The image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working a change in your life right now. And we rejoice to see evidence of that sanctifying change, that work in our lives and the lives of others. That's happening right now in your life and mine through faith in Jesus. But wait, there's more. The best is yet to come. When He appears, we shall be what? Like Him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means just this. Right now, our sanctification is a slow, transformational process. We rejoice when we, when we see progress against sin and temptation in our life or in the life of another Christian. We delight to see the fruit of the Spirit manifesting itself more and more in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we experience intense satisfaction when we love God and others more like Jesus does. But you know, we also take detours right now in our walk with Jesus, don't we? We, we do stupid. <laughs> we do stupid. We, we choose sin Instead of Jesus. Even as devoted lovers of Him and our old nature continues to wreak havoc in our lives and, and in our relationships, but when He appears, we shall be like Him. At the coming of Jesus, whether we have died or whether we are alive at that moment, He will appear in the full radiance of His divine, sinless glory. And His appearance will mean the instantaneous transformation of us into the fullest possible realization of our salvation. To be like Him. As much as a redeemed human being can become like Jesus without becoming deity, that's what we're going to be. Let me say that one more time. As much as a redeemed human being can become like Jesus without becoming deity, that's what we will be. Is that a cause for thanksgiving? Oh, man. We will never become gods. We're never going to become little deities, little Jesuses, right? There are some false religions today in our world that are teaching that. John doesn't say that. But as much as sinners saved by grace can be transformed into the likeness of the Savior physically and spiritually, that happens when we see Jesus at His coming. And that is a cause for great thanksgiving. On your note page, that means a couple of things. That means that our future bodies are going to be glorified. Like Jesus' earthly body was glorified, when He comes, when we see Him, our earthly bodies are going to be glorified. Jesus' resurrection proved that God doesn't just save our souls. He saves our bodies, right? Look at your body. Look at your body. There's a lot that could be improved on there, right? <laughs> a lot of work left to be done there. 
our physical bodies as Christians, they get old, you get wrinkly, parts wear out, eventually these bodies die. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean we don't die, right? In fact, we bury some of our brothers and our sisters every year, and one day it will be our turn if Jesus delays his return. Christians die. Our bodies wear out. But when Jesus comes, that moment will be the moment of our bodily transformation. The most amazing makeover ever. Not a resurrection to bodies like these, thankfully, right? But to what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, glorified bodies, bodies similar to Jesus' resurrection body. Here's how the Holy Spirit frames this for us. Behold, I tell you a mystery, says Paul. We shall not all sleep. We're not going to all die, when, but we will all be what? Changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. When's the last trumpet? That's when Jesus comes. We'll be changed, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's a transformation. Those old bodies decayed and and turned largely to dust, are going to be resurrected to an eternal glory. If we're alive when Jesus comes, they are changed instantly. 1 Thessalonians 4 on the front part of your note page. That passage tells us about this moment. Our physical bodies are transformed into glorified bodies that are perfectly suited to an eternal existence with God. That's what that means. We don't need all the details. We just know that's what it means. Our physical bodies are transformed into bodies perfectly suited to an eternal existence with God. They will allow us to fully enter into and enjoy all that heaven is and do and experience all that God has planned for us to do and experience. And not for a day or a week, but forever and ever and ever and ever. These are going to be bodies that never wear out. We will be like Jesus in this way. The most gifted Bible expert ever has no real understanding of how wonderful these glorified bodies will be. All we know is the ones we have are sin-impacted, right? They're sin-infected. When He appears, we will be bodily like Him forever. Is that a cause for thanksgiving? (laughs) That is. But brothers and sisters, as wonderful as that is, that's not really where John is focused at all. He's not thinking about our physical transformation nearly as much as he is thinking about our moral transformation when Jesus comes. We know that the power of sin over our lives was broken upon our confession of faith in Jesus Romans 6 declares that, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we have been set free. And we say amen to that. The power of sin was broken through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but the presence of sin still remains in us, and we know that very well, don't we? However, when we see Jesus at His coming, we will be like Him. And what is Jesus like? Brothers and sisters, 
He is sinless perfection. He is holy, sinless perfection. Absolute moral goodness, purity, holiness. And He is that all the time. He has never not been that. No sin, no pride, no covetousness, no self-serving loves or passions, no, no internal conflict to obey or disobey God, no guilty conscience. From eternity past, He has been this way in His moral character. No sin. Hebrews 4.15 says it plainly. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? That's Jesus. Jesus is sinlessly perfect. When Jesus returns and we see Him, we will experience instantly a full transformation to the moral purity that is Jesus. We shall be, what? Like Him. Sin in our lives is done with forever and moral purity and sinlessness will not only be our experience, it will be the only thing that we desire is moral purity. That is not true today. It will be true then. From that moment on and forever, we will be completely pure in every way. Thoughts, words, and actions as Jesus is pure. So shall we be. Is that a cause for thanksgiving? Oh. No, no, no sin nature to fight anymore. No guilty conscience. No corrupting temptation. None of that dirty feeling or the ugliness that results from sin's effects. Ever again. Never, ever again. To be like Him in His moral purity. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you. How? Completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, your whole being, be kept blameless. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. (laughs) We'll be changed. Completely sanctified, made holy, totally pure, just as Jesus is totally pure. Since we were born into sin, brothers and sisters, that is a joy and a feeling we cannot begin to fathom right now because it's never been a part of our experience. It's foreign to us. But someday we will be changed. When He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And that is a cause for thanksgiving. Glorious truth to be sure. However, John's whole reason for writing this is because of what he says in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, that is in Jesus, in His return, purifies himself as He is pure. In other words, anyone who looks expectantly for Jesus' return and holds the hope of being like Him in the future, is going to strive with all of their being to be like Jesus as much as the Holy Spirit will enable them to be right now, even though they retain a sin nature and all the failings that go with it. Did you follow what I just said? 
We can never make ourselves holy or pure. But we can long for a purity and the Spirit of God can work that into us by His power. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, in Jesus' certain return and coming, purifies himself, strives for purity, for godliness, to reflect Jesus more and more right now. We hope for Him. We hope to be like Him. And so we strive to be like Him now. That's the point of verse 3. If we're real, if you see it there on your note page, if we are real, brothers and sisters, if, if we really are in Jesus, real Christians in an unreal world, what we desire to be in the future, like Jesus, we will strive to be now. You follow that? We will want to be that now, if we're real. And here's why John makes these glorious statements. To, to, to expose the hypocrisy of those false teachers. They wanted to say, you know, I'm a child of God and, and heaven's going to be so awesome and there'll be no more sin and eternal life. It's going to be great. Moral purity then in the future. But those same false teachers would turn right around and say, God is gracious and loving and I can live any way that I want to right now. Their message was a message of moral impurity even as they looked forward to purity in the future. And John would say, why would you want to be like Jesus when He comes if you have no desire to be like Him right now? That's a huge spiritual disconnect. But there are a lot of people making that disconnect today, right? John says, don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize what you will be someday? Those who do don't want to live like children of the devil because they're children of God. Those who don't want sin in their lives in the future don't want sin in their lives right now. A true Christian desires moral purity now because that's who God is. It's who Jesus is. I want to be like Him in the future, but I want to be like Him now. And it's proof of being real to have that desire. Romans 6.19, Paul says it this way, Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness before you knew Jesus, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to what? Holiness, to moral purity. That should be your desire. Or, or, or he gives us a great picture into his own heart and the way he thinks. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with Jesus. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right now, that's my desire. Jesus, live out of me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Someone has observed that we all get in eternity what we want right now. Even in hell, God gives people what they want now. Think about that. If they don't want God here, He gives them a godless eternity. If they don't want righteousness and holiness and purity now, He gives them an existence 
with unrighteousness and unholiness and impurity then. If they don't want a God-pleasing holy life now, he gives them an unholy life for all of eternity because that's what they want. He gives those who have no room for him or his son exactly what they want forever. And that is called hell. But if we truly want to be like Jesus now, if we truly want a life of righteousness and purity now, a God-honoring life that reflects Jesus' heart and character perfectly, imperfectly now, God will give us complete, ultimate, total moral purity when we see Jesus. He gives us then what we want now. That's heaven. Brothers and sisters, to to know the true condition of of your heart right now, don't pay very much attention to your words. Because words are cheap. Look at your desires. What do you desire? Do you desire holiness? Do you desire to be like Jesus? When sin shows up in our life, does it grieve us? Does it convict us? Does it drive us to repent and run to Jesus for forgiveness? Do we hate it? Or is sin in the world our real delight and we return to it again and again and again with very little hesitation? We kind of just keep Jesus in our back pocket for the day when we might need him. What are our desires? You know, if our desire is not to be like Jesus now in anticipation of being like him when he comes, man, we need to look really hard. Do I know Jesus? Do I really know him? Because if I know him, I will want to be like him now. That's verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What a great, great passage of Scripture. If our real hope and satisfaction is in Jesus, we're going to want to be like him right now. And what happens to us when Jesus comes will indeed be the greatest moment of our life when we see him face to face. When he comes, we'll not shrink back from him in shame and terror. We will look up in confident faith and we will say, Amen, Come, Lord Jesus. That, again, was pretty weak. We will look up and with confident expectation, we will say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us just a little bit of a glimpse of what's in our future. But it's really about, in this moment, what we do now with what we have just been been shown. We will never do it perfectly, but oh, if we could just do life with you, Lord Jesus, today with a little more of a reflection of you than we did yesterday and a little less than we will tomorrow, that would be a great, great thought to be more like you, to be more like you, to want to be more like you until we see you face to face. Make it so. Make it so by the power of your spirit at work in our lives, by your word for your glory.
And Lord, now I would just wrap up by asking a special blessing on my friends as they will celebrate Thanksgiving with their family and, and friends. May your soon return be a special part of their Thanksgiving thoughts. Give them a great time with their family this week, and we'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.